Good morning, everyone. This on. We're good. All right. Let's go to the Lord again in prayer. <clears throat> oh, Father in heaven, your word says that the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God stands forever. As much as we are thankful for the coming of spring and the new grass and the new flowers, we realize that they will wither and fall. But we know that your word will not. It will stand forever. Lord, we want to be those who build our lives upon the rock, not upon the sand. I pray that today we would, as a church, more each build our lives upon the rock. That when the trials and the storms of the world come, we would be found built upon Christ. Oh, Holy Spirit, work now in this time, both in my proclamation of the word and in the people hearing it. May you work great wonders beyond what we can even imagine. We ask this in Jesus' precious holy name. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. If you look over history, do an analysis of history, you'll notice that people love heroes. Practically all cultures, all worldviews, all nations have their heroes. And if you look even closer, you'll notice a recurring theme within the vast majority of these heroes, deliverance. Deliverance. That is, that is, these heroes were men and women who rose up in a time when a people were in impression or bondage, and then against all odds, they led these people out of the bondage or the oppression. They delivered them. We see this in the heroes of our country. Who do we think of? George Washington. He's famous. Why? Because he kept America from, or led America from the oppression of England, right? Abraham Lincoln is famous because he freed the slaves from the oppression that they were under. Susan B. Anthony, famous for freeing the women from the oppression that was from that era. Martin Luther King, famous as well for freeing the, our black brothers and sisters from the oppression of Jim Crow laws and all that was from that era as well. As you can see, deliverance is a massive theme of heroes. We also see this in the scripture. Uh, one of the great heroes of the Old Testament is Moses, right? Why is Moses famous? Moses is famous to us because he led the people of Israel out of Egypt. He redeemed them. He delivered them from Egypt. Samson is famous because he freed the Philistines. He freed the Israelites from the Philistines, right? Knocking down the temple that they had. Esther is famous because she freed the Israelites, the people of God, from imminent death. And David, there's about 50 chapters of the scriptures that are about David, but what's the story we always remember? David and Goliath, right? So again, David is popular to us and his story is popular because he delivered the people of Israel against all odds from the Philistines as embodied in this great giant Goliath. Now, I think we lift up such heroes naturally, humanity does in general, because God has written on our hearts a longing for a deliverer. We know that we need one. We know that we are in need and that we need one. So central is this, I think it's even the theme of the Bible, the Word, God, the word of God. God created humanity and he so loved the world that he made a way for them to be delivered. Even the, the great Old Testament 
Even the great Old Testament heroes, Moses and David, what was their deliverance was a picture of the deliverer that was to come. A deliverer who would not only deliver from the Philistines in Egypt, but a deliverer who would deliver from sin, death, hell, and damnation. The deliverer is coming. Now I start here, and I start with this, because I think the main point of this text is that the deliverer has come. More specifically, there is mighty deliverance in the Jesus Christ. There is mighty deliverance in the Lord Jesus Christ. I, I was thinking this, in some sense, it's sort of funny to say that as a preacher uh, because in some way, every verse, every text of the Bible is pointing to that great truth. Uh, but the reason I feel the freedom to do this and say that I think that's the main point is because this seems to be the single note that this text, that this story, that this narrative is singing with such sweet clarity. Right, that point of that, there is mighty deliverance in Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to break it into four main sections. I think it breaks well like that. Uh, section 1, verses 16 through 18, we're going to see there's deliverance from demons. Deliverance from demons will be section 1. Section 2, deliverance from persecution. Uh, deliverance from persecution, I'm going to go 19 through 26. Section 3, Deliverance from eternal death, verses 27 through 34. Again, deliverance from eternal death, 27 through 34. And deliverance from suspicion, 35 through 40. I had to stretch a little bit on that one, but I wanted to keep him <laughs> the same. So <laughs> deliverance from uh, suspicion, 35 through 40. You'll see where I'm going with that. Just being honest on my outline. So, so now that first section, deliverance from demons. You can read with me verses 16 through 18. Now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us, who brought her masters much profit by fortune telling. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out saying, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. So in summary, where we are at at this moment is the little Philippian church had just been planted, right, in the previous text with Lydia. And not surprisingly, almost immediately, Satan wants to hinder what's going on. Satan tries to get involved, and he does this in a form of a demonically possessed little girl, right, following the missionaries around and saying, these are messengers of, what is he saying? Yeah, these men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. Now, I think that's really interesting. When studying this, the question I had is, wait, why is the demon joining in with their evangelism? Because what it's being said here is true, right? Uh, they proclaim to us the, the way of salvation. That's a true statement. So why is the demon joining them in that? I think the answer, I think the best answer, especially in light of Paul's response we're going to talk about, is that this is a demonic attempt to infiltrate the little church and wreak havoc from within it. Kind of that idea, if, I'm, if I act like I'm a part of them, I will win a voice among them. I'll win a seat at their table. Um, I think this is no wonder at all for Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11 that Satan also masquerades or disguises himself as an angel of light. The point of that being so that he can get in into your midst and have influence from within. Um, Jesus also gave a similar warning and analogy. He said this, beware of false prophets 
who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Pretty vivid analogy. You, you picture the, the sheep that Jesus is giving here. You picture the sheep like peacefully grazing on a hill, munching on grass. And then here is this wolf crawling along with this sheep's cloak over, over it, maybe a nose sticking out and a tail sticking out. Uh, but the point is, since it's hidden in the sheep's clothing, it can get into the midst. And once it's in the midst, it can wreak great havoc. Right, so massive problem having a wolf getting into the midst of you. And I, again, I think that's what's happening here. And that's why Paul is annoyed, right? It says, Paul greatly annoyed, turned, and then commanded the spirit to come out. So I think probably for two reasons. One, he doesn't, probably doesn't want to be associated with the occult. Or he doesn't want the church to be associated with the occult. But then also, what I was referencing before, he does not like the thought of this demonic voice, once he's gone, having a voice at the table. Um, I, I, analogy uh, someone gave when, when they were talking on this, there was a street preacher called Ray Comfort. I, I appreciate him a lot. And he said that for two years, uh, when he was street preaching, he preached almost daily, and there was this woman who would heckle him called uh, Petra. And she was dressed in black. She carried a wooden staff, and she claimed to be a prophet of the nation. She said that only eight ever could be saved. It had a lot of other just really weird doctrines, right? Very heretical views of the, God, of the scriptures. But he would say, as he preached, he would continuously say, amen, 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 to the majority of what he was saying. And he hated that as a preacher because it's like, we're not on the same side. Do not, do not follow what this person is saying. And, and he, he said he actually did, was so thankful in some ways when he would say something that she would be really frustrated by and then let out a string of profanity because that would just make it very clear. No, we're not, we're not together on this. Um, and I think that's similar that what's happening here. Then Paul, see, Paul drives out the demon. We, we can have nothing, uh, nothing to do uh, together. This, this voice cannot be part of the early church. Uh, now, with that said, no, all that I said above, I think the, probably the most important thing, even in this section, is that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Uh, the Lord Jesus is mighty to deliver. He is mighty to save. Uh, he absolutely has power over the, over the demonic realm. Um, he is able to deliver all from any background, any worldview, and any circumstances. Uh, and I think even the breadth of his power to do this, his breadth, the breadth of his power to deliver is even further clarified when we actually see the contrast between Lydia and this little girl. Because remember, there actually shouldn't be a break at verse 16. This, is, this would be just one letter going straight through. And so we would have just read about Lydia being saved and then just, just read about this little girl being delivered. So the contrast should be seen by us. And one pastor was commenting and he said this, I thought it was really great. He said, where Lydia is in control and intellect, this little girl is impoverished, enslaved, and exploited. While Paul and Lydia meet in the context of a formal orderly group meeting, Paul and the slave girl meet as she follows the missionaries around screaming her head off. As in control as Lydia is, this little girl is out of control. And I think where he was going, and very rightly so, is our Savior is very mighty to save. He knows exactly what each people, person needs. He is a mighty deliverer. Across any breath, across any need, the Lord Jesus is mighty to deliver. He is mighty to save. Lydia needed deliverance as much as anyone. Lydia needed deliverance. And what the Lord gave her is she was delivered, hearing Paul share the gospel, right, in the serenity of a river peace meeting on Sabbath morning, probably with the birds chirping and the sun gleaming down on them. And she was mightily delivered. And that's what she needed. 
This little girl needed something entirely different. She needed the power of Jesus Christ coming and casting this demon out. Now, the text doesn't tell us if she got converted, but it was nonetheless a mighty deliverance. And I think this is the glory of the Christian message. Why It's, it's a joy to be able to preach the gospel. It's a joy to be a minister of the, of the word of God. It's because this is, we're convinced that this word of God, this gospel, this message applies to every single person in the world. And it is mighty to save every single person in the world, no matter what background, how dark it is. And we need to believe that. The Lord Jesus is a mighty deliverer. He has power over the demonic realm. <clears throat> Next, we see deliverance from persecution. Jesus is able to deliver from persecution. I'll read verse 19 in a moment. <clears throat> but when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. So again, I think this is more just demonic attempts at breaking up the church. Um, after failing here to infiltrate the church, I think in, as a sheep in, or as a wolf in sheep's clothing, Satan now turns to his next tactic. Let's try to get these guys thrown in jail. All right, let's get them kicked out of the, out of the city. Um, note, note, what, note what he uses in the, in the masters. Uh, I thought it was pretty vile as I thought about it. He, he tapped on the profit motive of these guys. He tapped on the profit motive. Um, it, it says there, it says this, uh, when they saw that the hope of the prophet was gone, they seized them and dragged them away. And this is really messed up. Uh, this little girl had just been delivered from a demon who maybe her whole life had been tormenting her. These guys couldn't care less. These guys couldn't care less. All they cared about is we just lost some money. This is vile stuff. And Satan taps on it. Satan taps on it. It is, this is exactly what gets these guys thrown in jail. Um, it was very reminiscent to me of where Paul says, the love of money is the root of all evil. Right? The love of money is the root of all evil. Satan knows this. Satan knows that the love of money goes very deep. And when tapped, will turn into some very vile things. And I, this isn't the main point of, of this this verse, but... I just think we need to take an, we need to be warned by this example, friends. Fight the love of money. It can get us to some very dark places. Maybe you've seen it. Um, something you never thought you'd do, and then some love of money will get you doing something. The love of money can get us to some very dark places, as I think is happening here. So, brothers and sisters, fight the love of money. That we, Satan cannot use that as he used it on these masters. Well, then verses 20 and 21. <clears throat> and they brought them to the magistrates and said, these men being Jews exceedingly trouble our city and they teach customs which are not lawful for us being Romans to receive or to observe. I think they knew well that if they came and said, yeah, we lost the ability to make money, the magistrates wouldn't have been very impressed. And so they have to make up these lies and accusations. So what are they accusing? Yeah, you're going to trouble our city. No, actually, they're just going to trouble your wallets, right? But the, what they want to bring out is they're troubling our city. Not only that, but they're teaching customs, which is not lawful for us to follow. This is not true either, okay? Again, just making up utter lies. I think what's probably most persuasive to the magistrates, though, is the prejudice that is actually 
in the words that they use here. Maybe you didn't notice that. Let me point it out to you. In verse, uh, this is what they said. These men being Jews. Okay, so, so if I had to say how I think they would have said it. These men being Jews. Exceedingly trouble our city and they teach custom which are not lawful for us being Romans to receive or to observe. I seriously think that's what's happening. Um, they knew exactly what these Roman magistrates would want to see. They tapped on their prejudice that they had against the Jewish people. Hey, we're Romans, we're upper at Romans, and here are these Jews coming in and bringing their stuff to our city. And yeah, this is just the sort of, just the sort of language and stuff that will rile up a multitude, and it does. Verse 22. Then the multitudes rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothing and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them in the inner prison, and he fastened their feet into the stocks. Okay, so the result of this lie, they're falsely accused, they're stripped of their clothes, they're beaten with rods, and they're cast into the deep prison and put into stocks. I'm going to slow down on this because I don't, I feel like we brush over this stuff and don't typically get it. Like, oh, there's Paul being beat up again. We need to realize how brutal this is. Okay, so he was just falsely accused. They stripped the clothes off them. Probably naked to shame them. Okay, so they stripped all the clothes off them. There are Paul and Silas standing there. Most likely naked. And then they laid on them many stripes. They beat them with rods. Guys, they probably beat them till their back was, was raw with their own skin and their own blood. So we are seeing there too? They beat them with many stripes, with many rods. I don't even have a category for this type of pain. All on the basis of a false ac- accusations. And then you're thinking, well, maybe they'll let them go so that their friends can uh, heal their wounds, right? So that maybe they don't get infected. No, no, no. They give them to the jailer and say, make sure they don't get away. And he takes them and he puts them in stocks, locks their feet in stocks. So now they're probably laying on their back, on their absolutely abused back, in their own skin and their own blood. Probably in a damp, cold jail cell. This is brutal. This is brutal stuff. Sometimes we just need to slow down on it and realize what's actually happening. Can't even, yeah, just imagining the pain and the agony of this moment. In some ways, it makes, I think, even the next verse all the more unbelievable. Verse 25. But... At midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. Okay, hold on. But, remember that context. Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. Probably listening going, how are these guys not just releasing strings of profanity right now? Like they're laying on their backs, their raw backs, and praying and singing hymns of praise to God. So 
sometimes to get to sometimes to get to the core to get to the core of a text or to get to the marrow of what when we're meditating on it and reading the scriptures, what's being said or what we're supposed to grab from it, we have to ask questions of the text. And one of the questions that I think we need to ask of verse 25 is, how do you sing? How do you sing? Paul, how do you sing? Silas, how do you sing? How do you sing in that context? Paul, how do you sing when you're stripped naked? Silas, how do you sing when you're beaten with rods? Paul, how do you sing when your feet are stuck in the stocks at the middle of the night? How do you sing? I think their answer from the rest of the scriptures and the book of Acts, the way I think they would answer, they would say something like this. We sing because our Redeemer lives. And in the end, he will stand upon the earth, even though our skin has been destroyed, yet in the flesh we will see God. We will see him for ourselves. Maybe they would say we sing because there is a redeemer, Jesus, God's own son, precious lamb of God, Messiah, holy one. I sing because God is mighty to save. I sing because in his great love he died for me. I sing because he rose again. We sing because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future and life is worth living. Because he lives. This is why we sing. And this is a theme in the book of Acts and just Christianity in general. Um, Joy. Joy in spite of circumstances, right? That deep, sweet feeling in the soul of finding great pleasure ultimately in Christ and all that he is and all that he gives. Right, finding that deep, sweet pleasure in Christ and all that He is and all that He gives. Oh, church! I think a clear application from this. I, I long for us that we would be able to lift up our voices and our hearts in such a moment with a song, with a prayer, and in a song. And not, and not just when things are going well, in the darkness, when it's dark, right? At the deathbed of a loved one, in the dark night of depression, in prison, in ridicule, in pain. That we would be able to sing in those moments. That's what stands out, though, that kind of stuff. Singing in such moments. I think spring is here. I love spring. Um, <laughs> The, the green on the trees, that you know, that soft green, it's just beautiful. The mist rising off of the river and off of the, off of the field. You walk out in the morning and there's just this gorgeous sunrise and it's warm and it's, it's also crisp. It's just beautiful. And I always think it's easy to sing then. At least for me, it's easy to sing then. But really what makes us stand out, what makes us rugged and walk for a lifetime is the ability to sing in the winter as well. in the winter and in the winter of our souls. Um, Spurgeon said this, he said, any fool can sing in the day. It is easy to sing when we can read the notes by daylight, but the skillful singer is he who can sing when there is not a ray of light to read by. Songs in the night come only from God. They are not in the power of men. The psalmist said in Psalm 42, you are my song in the night. 
Songs in the night come only from God. They are not in the power of men. I think that's why they're singing. They're singing to God because they know that their Redeemer lives. Even more practically, just some practical questions I was asking is just, so what are some ways that we can sing when the waves are crashing over us? Right? So what are some of those ways we could prepare ourselves to sing? I think one, see in the scriptures, have a reason to sing. Right? Have a reason to sing. The greatest love songs are great because the author is so enraptured by their beloved. Song of Solomon is great because Solomon is enraptured by the Shulamite. We should be able to sing about a beautiful Savior, a beautiful Lord, a beautiful Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, know the Lord Jesus Christ. This is, I think, key number one. Know the Lord Jesus Christ. When you look at the book of 1 Peter, it's a book written to suffering Christians. And what does he talk about? The wonders of Jesus Christ. Look at him who suffered and therefore we will be able to as well. Know all about the Lord Jesus. Meditate on him. Know him in all of his kindness and all that he gave and all of his goodness. Know his gospel. Right? Know that if when we are suffering that our Redeemer lives, that we are justified, that we are made righteous. Know him. Know his promises, right? So many of you have told me that in your times of suffering, you cling to the different promises of Scripture and those gave you strength. Know his promises, have them committed to memory. Ones like this, Isaiah 54, 10. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Though the mountains depart, the hills be removed, his steadfast love will not depart from me. Know those. Know the promises of God. I would say, know the promise of heaven to know that this world is not our home. We're just a passing through. Uh, just last week, uh, someone was sharing me that in their testimony, one, something that was beautiful to them and helped lead them to Christ was how much their dad loved heaven. I think that's really beautiful. I want us to be known by our love for heaven. And I think our longing for heaven and realizing that that is our ultimate home is going to be what helps keep us singing in the night, singing in prison, singing at deathbeds. Yeah, realizing and knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. Finally on this, I think we have to have a good theology of suffering. Obviously, so much more could be said on this, but I'll summarize it with uh, Andrew Murray gave these as he called them the four anchors of uh, the four anchors of uh, holding on in suffering. I thought they were really great, so I'll read them. One, realize that we are here by God's appointment for he brought me here. Two, I am here in God's keeping for God will grant me grace and love to live as his child. Three, I am here under his training for he has many lessons he intends for me to learn. And four, I am here for his time for he will bring me out of suffering when he is ready. Right? Cling, cling to such truths. Have a strong understanding of suffering. Also, maybe even more practically, I would really encourage knowing some of the, the old hymns, maybe even the new ones and the Psalms and memorizing them. We talk about the analogy of uh, the, the armory, right? Having an armory so that when you run into uh, 
battles with, with Satan that you're able to pull things out of the armory. We typically, typically use it as an application of having scripture in the armory to pull out. I would also encourage, have some, uh, not as important, but have some hymns in there too. Have some songs in there too that you could pull out of the dark night of the soul and that you could use them as a weapon to sing. Uh, it's just sometimes songs can put into words what your heart is crying out and you're just not able to do. Have you experienced that? Just great songs, being able to put into words what your heart needs to, is unable to say. Like, um, you know, you're struggling, uh, that uh, you feel alone, feel like God's not with you. Abide with me, fast falls the evening tide, right? The darkness deepens, Lord, with me abide. When other helpers fail and comforts flee, help of the helpless abide with me. Or you're wondering about salvation or struggling to trust in Christ. Oh, rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water in thy blood from the riven side which flow be. Cleanse me forevermore. Christ alone my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. Or you're struggling to believe that Christ will supply all you need. My shepherd will supply my need. Jehovah is his name. Have those in the armory. I'd really encourage, take a couple of the favorite ones, the ones that have ministered to you, and lock them in so they can come out in prison, so they can come out again by the deathbed or wherever you are, the dark night of your soul. I wanted to even just publicly, Zach's not here, but thank our worship leaders for uh, week in and week out putting songs before us that would definitely be well sung in a prison and by a deathbed. Um, yeah, I'm thankful for that, brothers, that you guys labor to put that together and lead us in them and help us learn those songs because I think those are equipping the whole church to be able to join Paul and Silas in song, right, when that time is needed. So thank you for your guys' labor and everyone else who's on the worship team. Appreciate that. Now, with all that said, there's also a physical deliverance that's happening here. So Paul and Barnabas are Paul and Barnabas are here singing and praying and singing songs to God, and the Lord Jesus Christ gives them a physical deliverance. Verse 26. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. I heard someone say, if you want to wanted to see an earthquake in uh, ancient, the ancient era. I just put one of Jesus' apostles in jail. <laughs> Seems to be a bit of a theme in the book of Acts. Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ does not like his apostles in jail. And uh, <laughs> it's what happens. I was just saying. Uh, so that's what happens. The Lord Jesus Christ seems to ordain an uh, earthquake. And yeah, they're delivered. The chains, the chains fall off and the doors, and the doors spring open. Uh, now, they could have gone free. I think that's the picture that we should get. They could have gone free, but even leading up into the next section, it's as if the Lord was saying, yeah, you're freed. You could go free. You're delivered. But there's an even more deliverant, important deliverance that I want for you right now. Right? There's an even more important deliverance that's coming. Right now, your freedom is not the main thing. So you could go free, but stay where you are right now. And that leads to the next section, point three. We see deliverance from eternal death. Verse 27. I love this section. And the keeper of the prison, awakening from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword, and he was about to kill himself. 
So in Romans in Roman times, uh, what happens if a jailer would lose a lose a prisoner? Typically, they would they would have to face the death penalty. And whatever it is, evidently the jailer thought whatever was coming to him was uh, was going to be worse than just killing himself right now and getting it over with. And so he pulls his sword and he's about to kill himself. Oh, but God had other ideas. <laughs> with a sword at his throat, the Lord showed himself mighty to save. Twenty eight through thirty. But Paul called out with a loud voice saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light, ran in, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So Paul and Barnabas have not fled yet, and they cry out, We are still here. He runs out, and what a beautiful question. What must I do to be saved? I love that question. What must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? Perhaps he had heard some earlier preaching, right, when they were preaching in Philippi. Perhaps he had seen the demon cast out, or perhaps he had heard the gospel hope and the salvation in their prayers and songs. Whatever it was that tipped him off, he nonetheless still asked them. The right guys, that blessed question, what must I do to be saved? And their beautiful response, verse 31. So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That is a beautiful, precious, true, but very simple answer. Precious, true, but very simple answer. Can it get any more simple than that? I just think that's the wonder of the scriptures, the wonder of the word of God and the wonder of the gospel that it is so complex we could spend 10 lifetimes getting to the depth of it, but so simple the five-year-old can grasp it and understand it. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Brothers and sisters, oftentimes it's helpful in different contexts to further explain the gospel, maybe to explain to one person the holiness of God or the sinfulness of man, to express the incarnation more clearly. Sometimes people need to understand, and especially in this context, and realize that true belief is not just a mental assent, but is a leaning on, is a trusting, and that's what faith is. Also, sometimes need to hear the, that, that true belief involves repentance, but oftentimes people just need to hear the simple words, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. There it is. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. In a, a book I really like called The Gospel and Personal Evangelism, he tells a story um, of a, I think it was a Scotsman standing up in a testimony in a prayer meeting. And the Scotsman was recounting how four years earlier he had been on the Titanic sailing sailing towards America. And you know, you know the rest of the Titanic hit the iceberg and it went down. And he said he was floating on a debris and floated past a floated past a, another guy floating on debris by the name of John Harper. He was actually a pastor on the way to preach at Moody Church in Chicago. And he floated past him and John Harper, he said, John Harper cried out to me, young man, are you saved? He said, no, sir, I'm not. He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. He said, I floated away and I came back a couple minutes later and he said, young man, are you saved yet? He said, no, sir, I'm not. He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. 
And then I'll read, read, read the account. Then he said this, Then losing his hold on the wood, Harper sank. And there alone in the night with two miles of water under me, I trusted Christ as my Savior. I am John Harper's last convert. I think that's beautiful. (laughs) What he needed to hear was believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It is utterly true. Again, church, sometimes the gospel doesn't need to be fancy. There is a time for simplicity. Friends, every person in here, we can give that message to a dying loved one. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's a promise. Now to those who have never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to show you a couple things, further things from this text. The text here tells us that the jailer trembled. Verse 29, it says he fell down, ran in, and he fell down trembling before Paul and before Silas. He trembled. And I think rightly so. He was trembling because he had just been through an earthquake and probably sensed the power of God upon it. I think he saw the might of God in that earthquake. But probably primarily he was trembling because seconds before he was just staring down the cold blade of his sword and realized that he was this close, this close to slipping into eternity and standing before the judgment seat of the living God. And I would say, I'm just really glad that he trembled then and found Christ, rather than trembling without Christ before the judgment seat of God. And so, if you have never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to say it is right to tremble. You must realize the holiness of the living God the glory of him. He will not be mocked. You must understand even the terror of standing before God on judgment day. There is a time to tremble. Anyone who has not believed on the Lord Jesus Christ on judgment day will spend eternity in the fires of hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. There is a time to tremble. And most ultimately, and glory be to God, I want you to grasp these words. You must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's a promise. It's a promise. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Again, God will not be mocked. Do not put it off one more day. Pastor Brandon will be in the back. I'll be up front. There'll be other, I'll be around. There'll be other brothers, any of the elders, anyone from the church. If you have any further questions on what this looks like, talk with us. I don't want you to be trembling without Christ before the throne of God. You must be saved. And I want you to say, this is a promise. See the promise. You will be saved. If you believe, you will be saved. Amen. It's a promise that you can grasp on, you can put your whole life on, you can bank everything on. It's the kind of promise that Paul can sit in prison on, remember, and then sing. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Again, I'm going to say it again. If you have any questions on that, I invite you to come today. Don't, Don't put it off another day. You could leave from here and you could be hit by a truck and it's over. You must believe. 
must believe, and we want to answer any questions you have on this. Um, yeah, so, and then the latter part of that verse, I should make a note on that too. Uh, he also says, you and your household, I think it's pretty precious, just that the theme you see in the scriptures that the father has the uh, pretty strong influence in leading the family to Christ. In other words, you come to Christ and then be part of leading your family to Christ too, and they'll be saved too. So there's a pretty heavy weight, I think, on the father in this instance. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved. And I think he's saying, uh, then lead your family to Christ as well. Then verses 32 through 35, we see the jailer very quickly uh, bearing fruits and keeping with repentance. Listen to what it says. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. They had gotten saved. Now when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them and he rejoiced having believed with God, believed in God with all his household. Uh, the, great, the church father, John Chrysostom, said this, he washed and was washed. He washed them from their stripes and was himself washed from their sin, his sins. <laughs> he washed and he had himself just been washed. It's pretty sweet to see him, I think, just again, bearing fruits and keeping with repentance. That's what you're just seeing in the book of Acts. When they get saved immediately, what do they want to do? How can we serve? And even as an addendum to what I was saying earlier to those who have never believed in Jesus Christ, uh, notice that the household rejoiced. Believing and receiving the Lord Jesus Christ is a reason for rejoicing. I highlighted a lot of the reason for trembling, but friends, the positive side, when you receive the Lord Jesus Christ, there is reason for rejoicing. Okay? There is wonder in the gospel. There is wonder in Christianity. There is wonder in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a reason to rejoice. He and his whole household rejoiced. I'm guessing that was a pretty precious party. <laughs> Finally, my last point, when I stretched a bit, deliverance from suspicion. Deliverance from suspicion. So I'm just going to read the whole one and then say a couple words on it. <clears throat> 35 to 40. And when it was they, the magistrates sent the officers saying, let these men go. So the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Now therefore depart and go in peace. But Paul said, They have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans. They have thrown us into prison, and now they put us out secretly? No, indeed. Let them come themselves and get us out. And the officers told these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. Then they came and pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them to depart from the city. So they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia, and when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and they departed. So what's been happening so far is the Lord had delivered the slave girl from demons. He had delivered Paul and Silas from prison and he had delivered the jailer from damnation. Now the reason I did entitle this is because I think what's happening here is he's delivering through Paul the, the fledging church from suspicion. Okay, so, so what I mean by that is when we ask the question, why did Paul demand to be sent away publicly, right? So if he had the chance to leave, why didn't he just go? Because that would have made sense to me, just departing. I think most likely this is to publicly vindicate the cause of Christ and the Philippian church. Okay, so if you think about it, if they'd only seen Paul and Silas being beaten, 
accused and thrown into prison. That's the sense they would have had of Christianity and the church. The populace would have been very suspicious. So Paul, I think, wanted a public vindication. Come and you yourself show us out that we were right on this, that you were wrong in accusing us on this. I think that's why Paul was doing this. It, it'd be somewhat similar. Like, let's say, for example, there was a very public accusation against our church and we were, we were taken to court for it. And then uh, uh, the, the law came down and, and we, were, we were blamed and it was very public across Morrison County that we did such and such a thing and everyone knew about that, right? And so we were accused of it and then it just stayed there. Then about six months later, let's say, for example, they were like, yeah, actually we found some evidence that showcased that wasn't true and they sent us a letter saying, hey, sorry about that, let's move on. I think we would be like, no, you need to publicly declare this like, you defamed our name. Let, let all of Morrison County, maybe put it in the paper or something, let them know that this was really off. Because it would be necessary, I think, for, for the church to be able to keep walking, or at least helpful. Now again, with the church delivered from suspicion, Paul is ready to leave but not before he visits the little church and encourages them one last time. Verse 40, I'll read it again. So they went out of the prison and they entered the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. It's one of those moments I would have loved to know what Paul said with those last words. Like, what would you say as you're uh, leaving a church that you just planted and you might not see them for years? What would you say to them? Um, Obviously, we don't know, but it might have been something like this. Perhaps as he looked at Lydia, he would have reminded the church that the Lord Jesus Christ is inexpressibly greater than any possessions that one might have. That all we once held dear, we built our life upon. This is nothing compared to knowing Jesus. There is no greater thing. Maybe the little slave girl had become a Christian. We don't know, but if she had, perhaps with a smile on on his face, he would have looked at her and reminded the church that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The Lord Jesus has power over the realms of darkness. Do not fear, little flock. Maybe as he would have looked at the jailer and his family, he would have told the church, dear friends, never forget that there is no salvation in any other. For there is, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The Lord Jesus Christ is the only redeemer of the world. And if you believe on him, we will be saved. Now, ultimately, we can have some clarity on what he might have said because about 10 years later, this little church would have received a letter from Paul. We call it the book of Philippians. And in it, he said these words, and I'll conclude with this. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, regard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And he would have departed. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, my heart is thankful today for Christ, for the gospel, for the promises that he gives, for the heaven that he offers and promises to us. 
Specifically right now, I want to think of our brothers and sisters in the church in Ukraine as they are struggling and suffering in many ways and wondering how to keep going. I pray in the winter and the dark night of their life that they would, Lord, that they would be able to sing with Paul and Silas. They would be able to rejoice in the Redeemer and in the gospel. That you would lift their heads. That you, your Holy Spirit would give them courage to go on. I pray for all our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world, in the Middle East, in China, or Africa, wherever they are. I pray that you would give them courage and strength to go on. I pray that you would remind them of the gospel and the hope. I pray also for us as a church. Oh God, help us to be a church that sings in the night. Help us be a church that sings in the winter. Help us be a church that sings when it is hard to sing. May we be a people who praise you no matter the circumstances. Help us to be marked by joy. Now, Lord, hear these songs of praise. We lift to you for you are worthy to be praised. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.